Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Empower App Show. I'm your host, Leo Dion, with Bright Digit, specializing in iOS, macOS, watchOS, and server-side Swift development. Glad to have you for another episode. You can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion, and my company, again, is at Bright Digit. Today we have with us Dave Error. Hey, Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you? Good. So we've been uh, chatting quite a bit lately about uh, Swift Package Manager, but you're probably more famous for another certain project that you've been running for a few years, the uh, iOS developer mailing list, correct? Yeah, almost uh, years now. It will be nine years in August I started um, iOS Dev Weekly, yeah. And how long have you been doing iOS and development in the Apple space? iOS since the very beginning, and I wrote my first Mac app about a year before iOS was announced. So my first Mac app was in 2006, when I basically, I, I hadn't used a Mac really up until uh, very Recently, before that point, I was a Windows user for many, many years. And I actually bought a Mac originally to learn Rails development because it was a great platform for learning Ruby and Rails. Yes. And if I remember, Rails development on Windows was an uphill battle, to say the least, right? It really was. And at the time when I was trying to use it, it was virtually impossible. Those early days of Rails, just it wasn't really meant to run on Windows. Exactly. Or get or various other like big developer tools just were really awkward on Windows back in the early aughts. Yeah, it was certainly a much smoother experience on the Mac. And actually, I think one of the things that sold the Mac to me was that famous demo of David Heinemeyer Hansen doing his Rails demo. And his Rails demo was amazing, but actually, what was really amazing was TextMate. I remember looking at that TextMate editor and thinking, I got to get some of that. <laughs> and within a couple of months, I had a Mac. I don't think I really miss Windows very much. I'm kind of in the same boat where I, I think it was when I got my first iPad project for my previous employer and I started using a Mac. And at this point, it's just like the whole, not, not just Mac being like well-designed, Mac OS being well-designed as far as the operating system is concerned, but also like a lot of that Linux way of doing things is just something I've become much more familiar with as opposed to Windows. Now I use Windows and it's just like, what's a C drive and a D drive? Like, what are these things? Like, it's just, it's a whole other way and world of doing things. And obviously they've moved uh, a bit towards supporting a lot of the Linux stuff I know on Windows. But yeah, Windows just feels much more like an awkward experience. And I've been using Mac, uh, like 10 years, I'm in the same boat. It's been a long time since I've used Windows in anything more than just a cursory fashion. And because I, I, I kind of fell in love with the platform really quickly, I it just instantly felt right to me. And then I remember learning, starting to learn Objective-C and Cocoa development and kind of finding that a little bit tricky at first. But, but then once I got to grips with it, I, again, I just kind of fell in love with it. And then when the iPhone came out, I thought, well, this is a, an opportunity and, and never really looked back. Yeah, exactly. So you originally did not get your start with iOS development. It sounds like you started off doing Mac development on the Mac and then later went into iOS development. Is that correct? Pretty much. Although I'd been a developer for many, many years before that. So my start in software development was was years back from that. But yes, on these platforms, my first exposure to it was a Mac application. Because I was actually still working on that Mac application when the SDK came out, I didn't have an app 
in the App Store day one, just because I wanted to get that previous project finished and wrapped up and, and shipped. But then I moved on to iOS development as soon as I possibly could. You know? And so you've been running the iOS developer mailing list, correct? For how many years now? Yeah, it's almost nine years. So I started it in August 2011. I really didn't have any expectations that it would be anything at all when I started it. At the time, I was really enjoying a newsletter that someone I know actually called Peter Cooper. He runs a, a few newsletters like this. And he did one called Ruby Weekly, which I subscribed to at the time. And Yes, yes, I know what you're talking about. The whole weekly um, set of mailing lists. Yeah, and so I was a big fan of that newsletter and that format of newsletters. I thought it was a great idea. And I really, I, as a consumer of that newsletter, I enjoyed consuming the posts that he would link to. And so I looked around to see if there was an iOS one and there wasn't. And so I thought, well, I wonder if I can do that. And I actually did drop him an email before I started it, just saying, oh, I'm thinking of doing this and uh, signed up for a MailChimp account and threw a website together and, and published uh, issue one and then thought, oh, I've got to do this again next week. <laughs> <laughs> Because I picked the name where I used the name weekly, uh, which definitely sets the schedule. So we're talking like over 600 issues at this point, right? Not quite 500. It's like 450 something at the moment, I think. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. So you're probably stuck at home and you're not sure what to do and you think that maybe now is a good time to start a podcast. You're probably wondering what are some great services out there if you're thinking about starting a podcast. Now, when I first started off, I built everything by hand. So as a developer, we've all done this before, using services like WordPress and Amazon S3 to host your podcast and hope that everything works okay with strings and tape until you realize everything falls apart and you need something a little bit more professional. Now, there's a lot of really cheap services out there, but unfortunately, a lot of the times they do stuff like throttle your downloads or insert ads, which just make your podcast not quite as professional. That's when I found out about Transistor, which is what this podcast is hosted on. Transistor is really a solid publishing platform for professionals, and it's really reasonable pricing, and it will help you distribute your podcast to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it may be. So if you're somebody who's professional or running a business, I can't recommend Transistor enough. They have detailed podcast analytics so you can see how your downloads work. So I have great dashboard for seeing my downloads, how they grow, and how people subscribe. It is really great for creative businesses, professional podcasters. It's really a professional, solid podcasting host for people who are really serious about podcasting. If you are interested, I recommend checking Transistor out at transistor.fm, question mark, via equals empower apps. 
to let them know that you listen to the show and that you are serious about looking for a podcast host. And if you're looking for something with a solid website hosting, just check out our website to see the stuff you can do with Transistor. Again, that's transistor.fm question mark via equals empower apps. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to our show. So before we get into talking about the mailing list a little bit more, I wanted to talk about the big news that came out a few weeks ago with your iOS developer community survey. What was your thought behind starting the survey and what most surprised you about the results? The reason I did the survey is because I think, or I thought the um, insight that we would get to what the community really feels would be invaluable because what comes out of this community is the views and opinions of people who have popular or well-known blogs, you know, people who have a lot of Twitter presence and that kind of stuff. And that gives, it does give a view of what the community thinks, but it's a very individual kind of view and lots of different individuals, but there's no consensus around that. And I was curious as to what the entire community thought about some of these topics. And I thought, well, as somebody who is in a position where I could maybe get quite a few people to respond to a survey, I wondered if I was the person who should try and take kind of take that temperature of the communities to feel to see how they feel about various topics. So I started to put together a, a questionnaire and I thought, well, should this be a short questionnaire that a lot of people respond to, or should this be a long questionnaire that a few people respond to. And I thought, well, as long as there's more than a certain number of people, you know, as long as there's more than a few hundred people who fill it in, I think it would be more interesting to get a more comprehensive view of the community with a, a long survey. And so I started kind of putting that together and trying to be quite comprehensive with what questions it was asking. I also asked the community for their feedback on the questions before I kind of put it into the survey tool or anything like that. I put it into like a Google Doc and advertised that so that people could have comments. And I think people left, I think it was like 450 comments on the Google Doc or something like that, which was incredible. And so I thought, well, first of all, that shows as a good appetite for this project. If people are that engaged in making the questionnaire good, I'm definitely going to get a few hundred people filling it in. Ended up getting 2,000, almost 2,300 uh, people filling it in, which is no small feat because it was a very long survey in the end. It was 109 questions and it took on average kind of 20 to 30 minutes to, to kind of complete it. So that's a very large amount of time that I collectively wasted <laughs> <laughs> so is this the first time you've run this survey yeah okay i had run little mini surveys before but they were always about something that i was personally interested in so for example if i was trying to get a bit of information for something on ios dev weekly i'd done several surveys and i could see and most of those surveys were like four to five minute surveys rather than 20 to 30 minute surveys but i could see that people were keen to fill those in. And so it felt like a natural progression of, well, actually, let's try and get something a bit more comprehensive together. Okay. 
So first, before we take a look at the survey, I wanted to ask you, what did you find most surprising from the results? Well, so there's a couple of things that came out of it. First of all is there was a lot of stuff which backed up what I thought people thought. So if you think about what the community might think about something, a lot of it was kind of positive confirmation of, yes, the community does feel that way. Like, for example, how the community feels about Swift. The responses around Swift were incredibly positive. People absolutely love it. And I kind of predicted that. You know, if, if you'd have asked me what the answers to those questions would have been, they turned out pretty much as I expected them. There were some, though, that did surprise me. And I think probably the most surprising one was um, augmented reality. Now, I wasn't surprised that people were not particularly excited about augmented reality now, because I think augmented reality, as it stands right now with today's devices and with today's... I mean, the software is amazing. The AR kit, we just literally last week had a new 3.5 version of AR kit. Yeah, and with the new iPad Pro with the LiDAR and all that. Yeah. With the LiDAR, yeah, absolutely. So... You know, that, that SDK is clearly very important to Apple and has been for many years. Apple are putting enormous amounts of effort and time and money into developing that. But the experience of AR today, holding a device up at arm's length in front of your face is just a bit awkward and, and it's not really... You can see fairly obviously that's not the end game of AR. So... I wasn't surprised to see that people were generally not super excited about AR right now. And that came out at like a, an average of about 4.6 out of, in a scale of 1 to 10. So trending towards the lower end of how interested people are in AR. And even lower when I asked about what people's businesses level of interest in AR technologies was. Because again, you know, people might be personally interested in it, but their business, there's, it's kind of hard to find real world uses for it right now. Unless you're Ikea and you want to put a chair in a corner. You know? Right. And I would actually group machine learning along with that because it seems like machine learning ran the same numbers more or less, uh, even though like there's not that visual aspect or like reality kit type stuff with machine learning. There's still, I think businesses do kind of struggle with knowing how it fits and people do it as well because, you know, we had the episode on with Kevin and I think a lot of people, it's machine learning is sold as fairly an easy way to do stuff. But at the end of the day, you need your data ready in order to get going. And that's an even more insurmountable challenge as anybody who's had to import a CSV or a crappy Excel file into a database knows like companies are not really good about having clean data. So that kind of makes machine learning really Difficult. I think you're absolutely right. And I think with machine learning, especially, there's a lot of conversations that start with, oh, we could use machine learning to do that. But there's an enormous distance between a throwaway comment of we can use machine learning to do that and actually using machine learning to do anything. Precisely. And Apple have shipped a good amount now of quite tightly defined uses for machine learning, you know, image recognition, sentiment analysis, you know, that kind of stuff. And those, I think, are fairly well understood and fairly easy to adopt in your applications. But as soon as you move past anything like that, it's a big gap between thinking to use it and actually shipping it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But to, to go back to AR for a second, I think there was one question at the end of the AR section of the questionnaire that was, how important would AR technology be to your business's future plans if Apple announced or shipped some kind of glasses or other augmented reality hardware? And I kind of expected the answer to that to be crazy high because I thought, well, first of all, that's asking a question to ask people to speculate on uh, what they would feel about something in the future. And people are generally always more positive if you ask them to speculate on something in the future. But actually, it was even lower than their current level of personal interest in AR technologies, which really surprised me. I was not expecting that at all. Yeah, and, and just looking at the machine learning stuff, it's the same. It's like a little bit more, it's a little bit better, but it's still like 15% on 10s and like 20% on ones. And like either people are very, very interested or people are ambivalent or people are not interested at all and ends up being like a five essentially with machine learning, which is a, like a, like to me, that would be a wider uh, use case than AR because AR is specifically again visual. But like as much as Apple, like if we had a WWDC keynote this year, like I am more, I would put money on it that we would have a game demo as we always have. And, you know, Apple really likes to show off AR, but like there doesn't seem to be businesses particularly biting on it. Sure. I mean, you know, there are some businesses doing it, but it's really small. It's a tiny niche at the moment. Now, I actually think that if we do get some kind of, glasses that will expand but i still don't see a real kind of killer app for ar and i think that's what it's going to need something that really shows people how they should use whatever this device is or might be in the future whether it's apple or somebody else who creates it and if we get something that really captures people's captures not just developers imaginations but the end-user imaginations and actually gives people something they can genuinely use and find useful. And if that starts to get adoption, then we'll see, I think, a whole different landscape. But who knows whether that will happen. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing I was going to ask. Is is there a possibility that augmented reality just never does catch on? Not just a possibility. I think there's not a high likelihood. I think I wouldn't go as far as to say it's definitely not going to catch on. But I think there's a, a real possibility, like a significant possibility that it doesn't catch on, yeah. Yeah, I get the impression it's like many technologies that kind of just like, it's like going to be a niche, but just the usability of that being always accessible outside of like a car display, um, honestly, is pretty slim. So yeah, we'll see. Was there anything in the survey that surprised you? So if anybody knows me, I tend to be really interested in niche technology, speaking of which. Uh, I, I really love Swift as a language, but I try to find other ways of using it outside of iOS. So I was really interested in how Swift is being used outside of iOS, particularly my two favorite targets, which is the watch and the server. So I looked at that, and then I was like kind of disappointed, especially with Swift on the server. I feel like it's a much more stable platform than people are giving it credit. Watch is actually not too bad if you compare it with the Mac, which is nice because I think watch is going to continue to get better TV, like who, whatever TV's TV. Like, <laughs> I don't know what's ever going to happen with that outside of becoming a game console. It's like, I just don't know if there's any future with TV OS, honestly, but 
Watch is actually not too bad. Swift on the server was a little bit disappointing, but it's still kind of, it's at the early stage where kind of like Node would have been like 10 or 12 years ago. So I'm not kind of surprised by that. But then at the same time, I looked again and then I realized the name of the survey is the iOS developer community survey. So then I was thinking, wait a second, could that have skewed? Like maybe I was like wishfully thinking that the type, the naming that you gave it like skewed the results so that people who are interested in the other OSs aren't necessarily responding. I kind of doubt that because iOS is such an elephant in the room, but I, I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I think, well, there were several weaknesses of the survey, of course, because no survey is perfect. But one of the weaknesses is the fact that I advertised it through a, primarily through a newsletter called iOS Dev Weekly. <laughs> so, and that's generally why I gave it that name of the iOS developer community server. And that makes totally sense. I would have probably done the same thing. I, I totally understand that. Yeah. Now, I think the audience of iOS Dev Weekly is not only iOS developers, it is also Mac developers. And definitely watch OS TVOS and, you know, other core Apple platform developers. Mac developers, it's probably not as widely read as it is by iOS developers, but definitely there's a lot of Mac developers who do read it. But then it probably didn't capture very many people outside of the Swift community who are interested in Swift on the server. How big that market actually is, I don't know. My gut feeling says it's not huge right now, but it definitely didn't. I'm definitely not capturing those people's voice right now. Um, And then just looking at some of the particular results... You know, a lot of those tend to be more personal hobby things than necessarily business apps. I'm not surprised by Vapor absolutely demolishing the other frameworks. You know, I like Vapor. I love Vapor a lot. So it's good to see, but it'd be nice to have some variety, I guess, in the community. But Vapor's solid. I've been using it for at least a couple of years. I'm surprised that deployment on the server, there's no Heroku on there because I use typically Heroku. So I'm wondering... If there is a percentage on that, if it's within the other, I guess, category. And I'm surprised that nobody is really interested in dabbling on the server, at least in their business, a little bit more. But, you know, there was a solid no, it seemed like, with half of the respondents. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess those are my two big things. I'm surprised by the languages that other people are using. JavaScript, of course, that's not surprising. But then Python, there seems like a high number of Python folks. And then web, yeah, I guess I'm surprised by web and Android. Web being more popular than Android. And then React Native, of course, I'm not surprised by that. And then, yeah, Python was a big one. And... I guess Java is kind of surprising. I didn't realize still that many people use Java, I guess. I tend to think maybe it's a geographical thing, but I would think more C-sharp developers than Java developers, but I guess, okay. But yeah. So yeah, don't. So, so if you look at the world as a whole, I'm quite sure. Well, actually, I'm not sure there'd be more C-sharp developers than the Java developers, but certainly don't forget that this question is a question to iOS developers how many of them, what other languages do they use? So the chance of somebody using C-sharp compared to Java is much lower because C-sharp, yes, it does run on a Mac, but it's the equivalent of learning Ruby on a on Windows machine back in 2006. You know, it definitely works on a Mac, but it's not the ideal situation for it. Yeah, that's a really good point. That makes total sense because that would really... 
<laughs> that would really skew your results because you can't really do you're not going to run uh whatever visual studio on the mac i mean even though it's there yeah i mean you can do it but if you're serious about it you're going to be doing it on a windows machine yeah exactly um is there anything else you want to talk about the survey before i jump into the next set of questions the only thing i'd say here is uh let's tell people where they can find the results okay yeah so this is really well done survey. I really have to commend you on this really in depth. I love the questions. And like we said, you go into biases and data quality and stuff like that, which I really love. Where can people find the survey? Best place to find it is on a website called iosdevsurvey.com. And all the results there, along with some, so I've presented it both as kind of raw results without my opinion laid on top of them, and then also written some articles that do have my opinion laid upon them, but they're clearly kind of separated between here are just the raw results and here is my opinion on some topics. So yeah, uh, yeah, iosdevsurvey.com. Awesome. And we'll provide a link in the show notes. Fantastic. So what do you think are some mistakes that companies make with their Swift and iOS developers, just based on kind of your interaction, talking to a lot of folks in the community? Mistakes that companies make in what kind of terms? So you've been running this newsletter and you have this survey. How have you seen the community change over the past like decade or so? So the community has changed enormously in the last decade. I remember it from... Before I started the newsletter, but also, you know, when I started it in 2011, it was still very much in the in the kind of gold rush uh, era. And definitely in the last decade, it's become a serious platform for software development. And it's become a platform that really nobody can ignore, you know, from the biggest companies in the world have iOS and Android applications. Mobile has become just an absolute juggernaut in terms of software development. And it definitely wasn't always going to be that way. You know, we were just talking earlier about AR and whether it will happen or not. If you think back to before the iPhone, mobile software development was a real niche. You know, you were talking people writing J2ME apps for Nokia phones. You know, it was pretty... And I suppose BlackBerry had a reasonable app ecosystem, but it wasn't anything like what the iPhone created. Did you ever do any mobile development before iOS? I played around with Windows Mobile back in my, yeah, in my Windows days. I had a, what was it called? I had a, a compact iPack. <laughs> I-P-A-Q, I think it was called, yeah. Single touch device, yes. I had one of those. That's right, with a stylus, yeah. Yeah, and you could write C-sharp with those, and that was pretty elaborate or sophisticated for back then, but that was it. Yeah. But the one I had didn't have any kind of networking on it, but you could buy an adapter for the iPack. You could fit a PCMCIA card in. <laughs> <laughs> and you could stick it. And you had to install the drivers on the phone. <laughs> yeah. Let's not remember. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Restart the phone. And uh, yeah. So you could stick a, a PCMCIA Wi Fi oh, card in the back of this iPack. It was, I mean, we laugh about it, but at the time it was kind of amazing. So apart from that, though, I'd never done any kind of mobile development. And even that, I'd only really kind of played around with it. Um, I hadn't done, I'd never shipped anything with it. So yeah, the iPhone completely created an industry, basically. And Android helped to create that industry, but it was started by the iPhone, of course. Yeah, and like the iPhone really like democratized like the internet 
in a way that desktop PCs and laptops never did. Like, um, you know, speaking of the current situation, like one of the things you don't think about is, oh yeah, like mom and dad might have the internet, but they don't have a computer. So how are the kids going to do schoolwork at home uh, during this time? And I was like, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Cause like, yeah, they have the internet, but they're not going to give their kid their iPhone to do homework. Like it just doesn't make sense or their Android and like, that's the thing is like, people don't need computers anymore to get online, which has become a challenge in the current situation. But then it's just allowed more people to, to communicate a lot easier. Yeah, I think it completely changed the way people think about the internet. And it brought a lot of people to the internet. You know, it brought people who people were afraid of computers and still are afraid of computers. But you give people a, an iPhone or an iPad and it hasn't got that same fear embedded with it, partly because it's harder to break one. Not physically break it, but hard, it's harder to break the software on a, an iOS device because you've got less ability to get to the system. Right. It feels like a Jenga tower, uh, if you understand the analogy, uh, for a lot of people who are non-technical when they use a desktop or a laptop. Yeah. And the reason for that is because as desktops and laptops were maturing, it was really easy to break them. And so people broke them all the time. And then you're left in that situation where if you didn't understand computers, you'd then have to make that horrible phone call to normally you know, your son or daughter or somebody to say kind of, oh, I've broken my computer, can you come and fix it? And they don't want to do that. Nobody wants to do that. So, yeah, it completely changed the way people thought about computing. And it took that kind of word computing out of it, really. It wasn't, people didn't think of it like a computer. Um, so the industry has changed enormously over the last 10 years. And it's matured from, you know, at the beginning, it was all fart apps and, you know, gimmicks and lots of, real kind of fly-by-night stuff, just as people threw everything at the wall to see what stuck. And it's definitely matured a long way since then. You know, it's a serious platform for serious development. Of course, that doesn't mean fun applications can't and don't still get produced for it, but it's, as a platform, it's changed significantly. What do you think are some of the bigger, like for instance, Swift, you know, came along and that changed a lot. Do you think that was necessarily for the better? Were you a big fan of Objective-C? Do you feel like you miss Objective-C? I don't miss it. I did like Objective-C. I think it was a lovely language and it never really scared me in terms of, you know, a lot of people come to it and they they don't like the brackets and they don't like the message passing and all the rest of it. Um, that stuff never really bothered me that much. And I did like it as a language and one thing I, I still value about Objective-C is it's a very simple language. So for me, I'm never that interested in the language itself. What drives me is what I can create using the language. So what drives me is what what's the next kind of interesting app that I can work on or what's the next thing that I can do with this technology. And the language itself is not actually that interesting to me. And so a simple language was great for me because it's all about just getting me to the APIs that allow me to do stuff with the phone. What else do you program in, uh, if you mind me asking, besides Swift and Objective-C? If you do like any web stuff or anything like that? Yeah, most of my web stuff is Ruby, actually. I still love Ruby. And again, so Ruby is a more complex language than Objective-C was, but it's not a hugely complex language. You know, you can, or certainly you can use Ruby in a very simple way. And you can use Swift in a very simple way. But Swift is definitely a more complex language than Objective-C. But more than the complexity, I think just changing the language at a fundamental level 
is not a task. And I don't say that Apple did do this lightly. I know that they didn't do it lightly, but changing uh, the language that you use for your platform is a significant undertaking. And it sets development back on the platform multiple years. I think the introduction of Swift probably set mobile development back three to five years. What do you think we missed out on because of that? That's a very hard question to answer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I wouldn't like to speculate. But what it did do is it took community's focus away from building apps and onto what can the language do for me? Because as people who are interested in technology will gravitate towards whatever's new. And the new thing for several, several years was this language and how it was changing fundamentally after every release. And I must admit, through that time, I found it, that's probably when my interest in the platform has been the lowest that it has been in the nine years that I've been writing iOS Dev Weekly. Just because that side of iOS development didn't really excite me. You know, I was interested in Swift and I wanted to, I definitely learned Swift fairly quickly and I jumped on it. I didn't jump on it for shipping applications until a little bit later, but I was definitely following the development of it and learning it and practicing with it and all the rest of it. For me, it was still ultimately to make interesting things with the platform rather than to be interested in the language as a whole. And I feel like Swift is now to a stage where and the last couple of years have been more interesting back on the platform side. So last year's release of um, Swift UI uh, was was one where I thought, well, this is a, a fantastic move back in the direction that interests me personally. So it's never been about the language for me, really. Yeah, I, I never was like a Objective C hater, but I could definitely tell that certain features felt a little bit awkward um, that they were adding to Objective-C probably like, you know, back in the early days. Or for instance, like getting rid of retain and release and doing the automatic reference counting and things like that. Like it always felt like they were strange things to fundamentally change about Objective-C. And I sort of felt like at a certain point, they got to a point where it was just like, yeah, let's just start with a brand new language that we can really work with. That doesn't have a lot of the legacy cruft that I think Objective-C has. I taught Objective-C development for many years, and I taught it to people who had never used C or Objective-C or any of those style languages before. In fact, some people I taught to do had never done any kind of programming before. And suddenly you're faced with a situation where you have to explain to someone why NS integer is fundamentally different to NS string. <laughs> and that's a really hard conversation to have with somebody who hasn't grown up on C. Right. Yeah, like my big language was always C sharp. Like I was a Microsoft.net developer. And just like the breath of fresh air that came with Swift, as imperfect as it was, like you could sort of tell that the developer community just absolutely like swarmed when when Swift came out, kind of to the same way like developers have flocked to Swift UI is people are were desperate. I think there was a certain number of people who were desperate for an alternative. And it seemed to fill that gap. And I think there's a lot of things you just couldn't do in Objective C that we're doing now with Swift, like uh p- functional programming or even like you know Swift UI for instance where essentially we have a declarative UI uh within a programming language which is pretty amazing. Well actually that's, that's one thing that I thought the survey highlighted that I wasn't expecting which is I think there's a perception that Swift brought a lot of people into iOS development but if you look at how many people have been doing iOS development for how 
for a, a specific number of years, definitely the rush of people came into this platform and people who stayed in this developing for this platform was before Swift was announced. So I, I think it brought some people in, but not maybe as many as people think. Yeah, because I was looking at the survey and it was like a half of people were five to 10 years, which is obviously before Swift. But there's quite a few people who've even come before that, like the 10 to 15 range. So I don't think necessarily people went into iOS development because of Swift, most certainly not. And I think there's just certain certain things that become easier with Swift Short of the static typing, which I think people really hate from what I gather from folks who've been doing Objective-C longer, like it tends to be like the hatred of the whole static typing thing. Like nil has to be nil and int can't be float and such. I think that people really hate. Uh, But other than that, I think most people have like really embraced Swift in a lot of ways. And let me be clear. I think we are in a much better position with Swift. I am not one of these people who longs for Objective-C. We've moved on. And we are in a better situation now than we ever were with Objective-C, but it's not without its cost. Yep, I agree. So have you noticed any of these changes in the community with your weekly newsletter? Yeah, I think things come and go all the time. And actually, it's part of why I tend to avoid certain subjects in the newsletter. Like, I'm, I'm never a big fan of really linking to or talking about architecture as kind of application architecture in the newsletter. I occasionally link to it uh, if there's something that that catches my eye. Uh, But there are so many people writing about, you know, not even the best architecture, just various different architectures. And personally, it's never something that's really, like, grasped my interest. Like I was saying before, it's more about what I can build rather than the specific name for the architecture I'm using. And that's not to say that I don't architect my applications well. You know, I do. But that doesn't excite me. And also I find that that comes along in and changes so often, it's quite faddy. It rarely makes a huge difference to the application you're producing. There's lots of different ways to produce the same thing. Oh, you just insulted me. I just put out an article today on architecture too. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's funny. Guess what's not going to be in the weekly newsletter? <laughs> Yeah, no, I try to avoid writing pieces that are like, this is why Guillermo was on a a few weeks ago or a couple months ago, and he was talking about like these fatty, like, like architectural patterns. And like, yeah, I agree with that point. I think like having a architecture or knowing what Apple that was kind of my point in my article. It's like Apple has these suggestions about MV, MVC and like MVVM and like how to use them. But I'm not going to like say here, use this reactive library or third party library. That's what I definitely try to avoid. Um, anything custom where you're dependent on somebody, I'd usually tend to avoid those. But I think like I'll send you a link to my article. You don't have to put in the weekly. That's fine. Great. Yeah. <laughs> You said certain fads like come and go. What are some fads that you've seen like come and and go and never be heard of again? Like, are we talking like messaging apps or just one in particular? Uh, That's a great question. Um... Because it seems like Apple always puts out these like big things at WWDC and then like we forget about them a year later. Like like messaging apps. That's the one that just I think of off the top of my head. Protocol orientated programming was going to be the next big thing. And of course, you know, elements of that very much come through into what we do today, right? But I think it's whatever you try and give something a name and then say, this is the way 
to write applications. That's when you kind of run into trouble because there's no architecture that really fits every solution. And and, pe- and it's very tempting to look for the architecture that solves all the problems. Like we always just want one thing that solves all the problems because that would be nice and clean. And if we could all just agree on that, then everything would be fine. <laughs> Then we could all stop talking about it. Like, there's a right tool for the right problem. And, like, people tend to be like, oh, yeah, a hammer. I'm just going to use a hammer for everything. And it's like, no, a hammer is not meant to be used for painting. It's not, you know, it's just you don't use the same tool for everything. And I think, like, the thing, I guess my whole thing with architectural patterns is they're good to know about. As you program something, they usually grow out of your code. It's not something that you're like, I'm going to open up the design patterns book and use builder today because i feel like it. it's like no it usually just grows naturally out of the code that you build i think yeah i think in terms of fads almost every cross-platform framework has seemed very faddy to me and they come around every year or two and there's some kind of new way to basically you know write some kind of cross-platform usually javascript based application and I don't pay an enormous amount of attention to those anymore because I've seen it happen so many times and they're never as good as they claim to be. And there's always enormous compromises. And that's fine. Sometimes those compromises are worth making, but again, it doesn't really interest me. And so like one of the things I, I said to myself when I started the newsletter was, I'm not going to try and guess what people are interested in. I'm going to just write about what interests me. And if people are also interested in it, then they'll read it. And if they're not, then they won't. And I'll know not to do it. <laughs> well, and if you were trying to guess what the audience was interested in, I bet you'd lose momentum in wanting to do it. You'd get like bored, like, oh, people want to know about React. I hate React. It's like, well, yeah, it's not going to be really easy to come up with a weekly newsletter if you have to do React when you're not interested in it. Exactly. So I'll cover it in, in terms of you know, maybe mention it, maybe link to a couple of articles about it, but generally I just stick to whatever it is me. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We're going to continue our discussion with Dave in the second part, specifically talking about Swift packages, Swift package manager and SwiftPM.co, his website for showcasing different Swift packages. If you're not subscribed, please do subscribe to this podcast to catch our next episode, which will be coming out soon. Thank you again. You can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. You can find Dave on Twitter at Dave Verwer, as well as his newsletter at iOS Dev Weekly. Thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to you listening to the second part of our episode. <laughs>